Welcome to the Paul Stone Sports Podcast. For over 30 years, Paul Stone has been seriously handicapping college football, college basketball, and PGA Tour golf. Over the past five seasons, spanning almost 600 releases, Paul has hit 55% against the spread in college football, gaining the respect of sports books and bettors throughout the world. He is monitored by highly respected the Sports Monitor of Oklahoma City. Paul has also won two major Las Vegas football handicapping contests and finished in the top four in two others. Each week, Paul will provide exclusive handicapping insights on the podcast. To receive Paul's exact picks each week, you can sign up for member-only access at paulstonesports.org. Now, on to the show. Welcome to uh, episode 39 of the Paul Stone Sports Podcast, and I'm Paul Stone. This week's episode is titled, A Podcast with No Name. Uh, Sort of like the 1970s hit by the rock group America, A Horse with No Name. Uh, This is, again, a podcast with no name. Uh, It's mostly going to be a look at some of the reasons I think most people ultimately fail at sports betting, ultimately lose at sports betting. Uh, But I couldn't really think of a good title, a catchy title. So hence, today's title, A Podcast with No Name. You know, I think, first of all, I think there's three reasons uh, that sports bettors don't attain long-term winning results. And I'm going to go into, you know, a little bit of depth in all three. Uh, Number one, uh, the first reason, plain and simple, is just the inability to handicap games. Uh, There's no nice way to put it, really. Most people are simply unable to attain a winning percentage of greater than the 52.38%, which is the break-even point. Uh, when laying 110 juice. Uh, If you're lucky enough to lay 108 uh, as your standard, then your break-even rate is 51.92%. So a little bit lower, but still uh, difficult for many people to to achieve. Uh, And for the sake of simply disseminating information, uh, the break-even rate at 105 juice is 51.21%, and 115 juice break-even point 53%. 0.48%, and I think those latter, those last two uh, percentages uh, do have some uh, uh, place in this discussion because some of us routinely, or at least from time to time, uh, do lay 105 or 115 on our uh, on our sides. Uh, But back to the original premise, Uh, one of the primary reasons in my mind most betters lose is they simply cannot produce winners at a rate high enough to offset the 110 juice. Uh, As I and many others uh, in the sports handicapping space like to say, 11 is always bigger than 10. Uh, You know, it is today, it was yesterday, and it will be tomorrow. Uh, You know, over a large sample size, it's going to take skill uh, to hit 52.5% or higher against the spread. Uh, Most who are able to do this, uh, you know, they have data and they know how to use it. Uh, They have experience. Uh, You know, they know a good number when they see it. And they certainly have multiple outs, uh, places to bet, which puts them in the best possible position to get the best possible number. You know, here's a few recommendations that I would give uh, to people on handicapping. 
and improving their handicapping skills with the huge caveat being there is no secret potion. You know, there is no magic pill. Uh, there's no paint by numbers or bet by numbers in this case recipe guaranteed to get you back to the window time and time again. People ask me all the way, you know, often anyway, not all the time, but from time to time, you know, what, what, what can just give me one piece of advice that'll help me win. And there's really not one single piece of advice that's going to, uh, to get you there other than hard work. Here's one recommendation though, uh, that I will pass on. Most betters are predisposed uh, it's in their DNA, I'm sure of it, to bet favorites and to bet overs. Uh, I saw a tweet uh, on social media a few weeks back, maybe a couple of weeks back, <clears throat> where the author incredulously asked, who goes to Vegas and bets on nothing to happen? Uh, apparently, you know, just kind of expressing his disdain for betting unders. Again, most people like to bet the favorite and they like to bet over. So what does this mean to me, you know, as a handicapper? How do I use this information? And folks, what it means to me is I'm alternatively going to have a proclivity, if you will, to do just the opposite. I'm going to take a harder look at underdogs and the under. Am I going to automatically win uh, just because I'm going to more closely examine underdogs and unders you know absolutely not but i do think an astute better can find occasional advantages in backing the underdog and or the under you know a case in point when you look at these five-day weather forecast you know they can be dicey at best i'll admit that but if it's monday and the ensuing saturday forecast calls for a 90 to 100% chance of thunderstorms and winds between 15 and 25 miles per hour, and your numbers show a total of 51, and the betting total is actually 51, might there be some small advantage in playing the under? You know, that 51 is probably not getting any higher, and if the weather forecast still reads essentially the same come Wednesday, that total is probably headed to 49, you know, 48, or perhaps even lower. Early bird gets the worm uh, as the slower reacting masses will be left with an inferior number to yours. At worst, uh, you know, you're, you're very likely going to have the ability to buy back some of your original position uh, with at least some possibility of a middle there. And at best, you might end up with, you know, four or five points of value. Uh, by getting out in front of the crowd. Another tip, you know, avoid betting parlays. <laughs> and I say this uh, fairly often, but with roughly 30 U.S. states now having some form of legalized sports betting uh, since the repeal of PASPA in May of 2018, there are more and more relative newbies entering the marketplace. Uh, I haven't monitored each state's revenue figures uh, much recently, but initially, anyway, the new states hold percentage uh, in states such as New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and some of the others was considerably higher than the hold percentage for the state of Nevada. Why? 
I mean, you know, it's pretty clear. In a nutshell, less sophisticated bettors in the new states were betting parlays at a much higher rate than their more seasoned, more sophisticated counterparts in Nevada. You know, folks, you look at uh, the actual probability in hitting a two-team parlay, uh, it's one in four. Uh, so in a perfect world without vigorish, a winning two-teamer would pay four to one. Yet the standard payout for a two-team parlay is only 2.6 to 1. Uh, the mathematics, you know, pretty well speak uh, for itself in that case. Bookies love parlays. No question about it. If you get them in a, you know, if they're being honest with you, being frank with you, uh, and, you and you know someone well in the industry, uh, parlays pay for the house. You know, they pay the bills. Uh, customers of sports books they get sucked in by the lure of betting a little to perhaps win a lot uh, but the reality is that the high theoretical hold percentage is just very very advantageous to the book's uh, bottom line there so don't uh, you know don't bet parlays another reason that most sports bettors lose in my mind is going to be poor money management skills you know, they win at one rate and they lose at another. And I'll let you guess which rate is higher. Uh, one of the most common examples of this is probably uh, when a person increases their unit size on the hills or in the midst of a winning streak, ultimately significantly reducing or unfortunately in some cases draining their entire bankroll. You know, how does this happen? You know, basically, it's poor judgment. It's lack of respect for the opponent. Besides, they were winning. You know, they've got this sports betting thing figured out. They're invincible. You know, folks, I know my spill probably sounds like a broken record, uh, but as my late father once sternly warned me, there's no easy money to be made in gambling. And Dad was usually right. You know, hell, he was always right. There is no easy money to be made in sports betting, but it can be done. It takes hard work. It takes unwavering discipline. It's a grind. You know, it's long hours, and you have to endure many 50-50 days, break-even days, where you're just patiently waiting and not pressing uh, in anticipation, you know, of those pockets of time where you hit a high percentage of winners and kind of make your hay, so to speak. You know, back to money management, I don't believe, you know, it's prudent uh, to significantly increase your standard unit size by 50% or more, you know, based on a period of winning uh, over a relatively small sample size, but rather increase your unit size modestly and gradually uh, as your re accurate record keeping, and I emphasize that, you got to keep records. You got to know where you're, if you're really winning or losing, where you're winning, where you're losing, so forth and so on. But I think it's best, again, to increase your unit size modestly and gradually as you inspect your records and you're seeing winning results over a sample size of hundreds of events. If you're winning, you know, over a small sample size, and you don't really have a history of long-term winning results, you're really vulnerable to a regression to the mean. So don't just automatically press when you're winning. 
I think this goes without saying, but there are no sure things, no locks in sports betting. I understand I'm mostly uh, preaching to the choir here, um, but there's no sure things. You know, my documented history, looking at myself, my documented history of winning against the spread in college football, uh, now seven straight winning seasons as monitored by the Sports Monitor of Oklahoma City. I think my documented history stacks up against anybody. And I bring this up because if I really personally like a side or a total, and I mean I'm absolutely in love with it, what percentage for success against the spread does my selection truly have even based on my own positive past performance? You know, this is really obviously very subjective, uh, really as much a guess as anything. But I'd say that type of game might have a 62 or 63% chance of covering. So let's say that's accurate. 62 or 63%, that's an expert's best, and it still means you have greater than a one-third chance of losing. You know, folks, again, there are no locks in sports betting. Now let's go ahead. We'll go ahead and transition to this week's uh, shameless plug. You know, I've been doing this for the better part of 30 years and change. Uh, I don't let, uh, I don't bet rather everything under the sun. I don't bet each sport as it's being played. I focus on three sports, college football, college basketball, and PGA Tour golf. Again, seven straight winning monitored seasons in college football. To date, through games played yesterday, Wednesday, February 16th, this season in college football, college basketball rather, football's over, this season in college basketball through games played yesterday, Wednesday, February 16th, 107-83-2 against the spread, a winning percentage of 56.3%. Uh, please go to paulstonesports.org if interested. Only 254 for college hoops through the national championship game in April. Only 239 for PGA Tour golf through the end of August. Only 379 for both sports. Again, please visit paulstonesports.org if interested. Going on to kind of my final reason that I believe people uh, fail to become long-term winners at sports betting is they are not price or point spread sensitive. Or perhaps they are, but they only have one or two outs, so they're fighting an uphill battle uh, in this must-have component of getting the best number more often than not. You know, no, most listeners who are out there right now listening to this podcast probably realize no one gets the best of a number each and every day, each and every game. Uh, regardless of what they might lead you to believe. You know, sometimes no matter who you are, how good you are, how good you think you are, your numbers are going to tell you one thing and the market tells you something else. It doesn't necessarily mean your numbers are off. You know, you may ultimately be proven to be spot on, but it does mean that you clearly misread the market, uh, which is a key component in one's quest to get the best of the number a majority of the time. So to be price and point spread sensitive, you first of all have to possess the senses or ability to know what reflects a favorable price or point spread. 
in in some cases, you know, uh, prior to the release of lines, I might establish personally a buy price in advance if there's a certain player or team uh, that I might be favoring. You know, for instance, I might be preparing for Circa's Sunday morning release of the following week's college football lines, and I might make a mental note to myself, something you know along the lines of Oklahoma's favored by less than three against Texas, I'm taking the Sooners. Or if I anticipate that uh, Xander Shoffley and Scotty Scheffler are going to be matched against one another in a fourth-round PGA Tour matchup, I might tell myself, I'm taking Shoffley if I can get him uh, minus 115 or better. Of course, the key you know, to doing this sort of thing is having a good sense of what the number or price should be and then having the discipline to stick to your guns, your plan, and not wavering. So the first part of price slash point spread sensitivity is recognizing a good number when you see it. And the second part, drumroll please, is having enough outs or places to bet to get the best number. You know, there seems to be at least some debate on social media about the significance or level of criticality of having closing line value or so-called CLV. I'm not sure why there's even a debate, but you know, hey, it's social media, so I guess anything goes. But in my mind, there really is no debate. You know, there's certainly, uh, I'll admit and acknowledge, there are a number of results that land nowhere near the opening or closing line or, or anywhere in between for that matter. And the point spread, you know, printed on your ticket has absolutely no bearing on whether you cashed, pushed, or can simply crumple up your ticket and deposit it, you know, in the nearest uh, wastebasket. But I view sports betting as a large sample game. And my goal day in and day out is to be a long-term winning sports handicapper. And to accomplish, uh, you know, accomplish this charge, I have to assemble as many advantages as possible in my corner. Some of these advantages are probably best defined as, as being minuscule. They're very, very small. But I've got to assemble all these advantages and let the edge of these collective advantages lead me to the penthouse and spare me from the outhouse. Because in sports handicapping, uh, it can be a short distance, you know, from those two distinctive houses. Among the most significant of the necessary advantages in my mind is to have closing line value in your corner more often than not. And part of that you know, certainly, first of all, is to avoid having negative closing line value on too many occasions. To get closing line value, you know, one, you've got to have the gift. Uh, you've got two, you got to know when to enter the market. And three, you have to have sufficient outs to shop for and ultimately get the best number. You know, every successful handicapper, you know, there are different ways of doing it. I acknowledge that, and every successful handicapper has their own style and approach. But for me, the quest to get the best number, especially in college football, means betting at a market-making book like Circa on Sunday mornings. 
over the last few seasons, Circa's, you know, clearly been the true market maker uh, with its Sunday morning release of college football numbers for the following uh, weekend's games. Uh, they post those numbers before any other book in the world. So in my individual case, when it comes to the sport of college football anyway, it's not as critical maybe for me to have multiple outs, even though I do, on these Sunday openers because I've essentially got first dibs or at least close to it on the worldwide openers. But I understand most people don't reside in Nevada or have access to those numbers on a weekly basis. So they're going to be entering the marketplace uh, at at least you know somewhat of a slightly later point. You know, perhaps as early as later Sunday afternoon, or maybe Monday morning, or you know, or maybe you know in a worst case scenario, a better doesn't enter the marketplace in college football or even NFL for that matter until Tuesday. It's much more advantageous from my perspective and goal structure to enter the marketplace Sunday afternoon or Monday morning than it is to enter Tuesday or later. Uh, So this is where, you know, I think it becomes critical to have multiple accounts, you know, hopefully at least three and ideally five or more to be able to get the best number. If you're able to obtain multiple accounts, you know, I think it's optimal to get a variety of accounts, you know, meaning get at least one that posts early lines and and overnights and baseball, uh, basketball, and and similar sports. Get another, you know, that perhaps routinely deals 108 juice uh, or at least some type of discounted vigorish. And then get perhaps a a third one uh, that deals favorable money lines, uh, maybe favorable numbers on the future pools uh, and, and that sort. Maybe one that has a, a reputation for being favorable to underdog betters. In other words, you know, try to assemble a wide range of accounts offering something uh, unique to your arsenal. If you only have one account, all accounts are not created equal. You know, it's one thing if your account offers, you know, Sunday college football lines and overnights giving you the opportunity to bet into less mature markets, uh, you know, that that's not the worst thing in the world if you have an account like that. But it's quite another if the only account you have doesn't post its college football openers until Tuesday, meaning you're left with a very mature market, which has been raked over uh, and, and picked through, kind of like the salad bar at the Golden Corral, you know, back in the days when, uh, we still got to participate in communal uh, come one, come all salad bars. But folks, you know, suffice it to say, having one place to make bets uh, that doesn't roll out its lines until Tuesday for the upcoming weekend football games, that's a tough way to make a living uh, laying the traditional 11 to win 10. Going to end tonight's uh, podcast with, uh, and I record uh, shortly before, as I sit here right now, shortly before 8 p.m. Central on Thursday, February 17th, I'm going to look at a college basketball game in the Southeastern Conference scheduled to be played this Saturday, February 19th in Nashville, Tennessee. And this is an SEC game between two teams that enter with identical 5-8 and eight conference records. 
uh, Vanderbilt will be hosting Texas A&M Saturday in Nashville. You know, first of all, in its last game, uh, Texas A&M snapped an eight-game losing streak uh, with a 56-55 home victory over Florida. Uh, meanwhile, Vanderbilt played yesterday, uh, as I record, on Wednesday, February 16th, lost 94-80 to at second-ranked Auburn. Uh, Vanderbilt actually got out to a 14-3 lead in the game's uh, opening four minutes before Auburn came storming back. But I still like the competitiveness of this Vanderbilt squad. It's a squad led by Scotty Pippen Jr., Leads the team with a, a team-high 19.3 points per game. Uh, the Commodores have won their last three home games. They've been competitive in most of their conference games. Uh, the Aggies do have uh, two league road wins this season. They won by two at Georgia, won by three at Missouri earlier this season. I think Vanderbilt, though, gets the job done here. I look for this line to be three. I'm not sure I want to lay any more than three with Vanderbilt, but if you can get three or less – Take the Commodores over Texas A&M Saturday in Nashville. Well, that does it for another uh, episode of the Paul Stone Sports Podcast. This has been a podcast with no name. And uh, college basketball, we're starting to get into the uh, latter part of February here, middle part of February, latter part of uh, February. March Madness will be here before you know it. Uh, college basketball beginning to take shape, going to be a great season, uh, going to shape up uh, and be a great tournament. Appreciate you guys being with me again. This has been episode 39 of the Paul Stone Sports Podcast. Until next time, signing off again, I am Paul Stone. Thank you for listening to the Paul Stone Sports Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And visit paulstonesports.org to sign up for member-only access to Paul's college football, college basketball, and PGA Tour golf picks and predictions. 